The Sparkfile podcast may contain profanity and other adult content. Please use your discretion. When I bump into something that inspires me, I jump in in my Sparkfile. To be something that I want to make or how I want to be. I pump it in my Sparkfile. I jump into my spark fire. Let's open up the spark fire. Welcome to the spark file where we believe that everyone is creative, but smart creative people don't go it alone. I'm Laura Camion. And I'm Susan Blackwell. If you're an OG listener, welcome back, Sparkler. If you're joining us for the first time, ah, we're so happy that you're here and you're so welcome. Whether you have put your creativity on pause during this time or you've clung to it like a lifeline, either way, Welcome. But you may be asking yourself, what exactly is a Spark file? Where do I get one? What do I file in it? These are such good questions, and we actually do have answers. A Spark file is a place where you consistently collect all your inspirations and fascinations. Here's the deal. We are makers who make all kinds of things. If you're like us, and you're making stuff all the time, or want to be making stuff all the time, you know that the wellspring of inspiration can run a little dry, especially now. But don't despair. We are here for you, and we are on the lookout for fresh ideas, images, and inspiration that spark our creativity and pique our curiosity, things that inspire us to rise up off our asses <laughs> and make things like this podcast. <laughs> or an exploration and study of families, industries, and monopolies. <laughs> or an approach to creative feedback that feels like a puzzle piece clicking into place. Ooh, every episode, we're going to reach into the spark file and exchange some sparks. And from time to time, we're going to talk to some folks who spark us too. And if you're not careful, you just might move past old fears and into new possibilities. So without further ado, let's open up the, the spark, spark file. file. Hi, Kimmy. Hi. Hi. I'm a little giddy. I've got to tell you, I'm a little giddy, Kimmy, <laughs> because I'm excited. We are we have a little bit of a time deadline on mm -hmm. the recording of this episode. Usually, we just have open ended, <laughs> luxurious time, but today we're popping and locking because somebody's got to get in their car and go get that. COVID vaccine. Yes, guys, I'm getting shot number one today. I'm so excited. I'm, so I'm getting happy. shot number one. I'm so happy for you because the sooner both of us are fully vaccinated, the sooner it means that we can I'm hug. Get, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna <gasps> march my little self right down to you and I'm gonna hug you and then I'm just gonna run, run back to you. <laughs> real quick. Oh, I'm not letting go. Uh, so that's gonna put a little <laughs> snag in that plan. <laughs> I will Whoa, not let Aunt go. Laura, Aunt Laura hugs too long. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. just about, about my it. old, my Aunt Mitty. I had an aunt who was. Aunt Mitty. Aunt Mitty. Her name was Mildred and she was really a great aunt. So she was oh. like, you know, 90 some. And she had a mole. She had several moles, but a mole on her chin. Um that had hairs growing out of it. And I oh. always thought of like, you know, on the hair on your chinny chin chin. Yeah. Because yeah. that was that age. And so I just was like, it's about her. That's the hair on her chinny chin <laughs> She's chin. She's famous. <laughs> <laughs> they write poetry about her. They do, Suze. Hi. I'm excited. I'm having a weird sensation though that I haven't done something that I'm supposed to. Like, have I not pushed a button? We're recording, right? 
it's happening. I see the little sound files going. Great. Jiggity, jaggity, jiggity, jaggity. It's a strange jaggity. sensation. Um, maybe that's the sensation of, it's been a, just like a second since we've recorded. It's and been so a it's fun to hop in. <laughs> and uh, shall we? Yes, I've, without I've further ado, stories today. It's story time today. For me, I was saying to you, you know, there's all kinds of things that spark us and engage us. And, and a lot of times we like to go deep and today's not one of those days for me, but I, I do <laughs> find like, I find yeah. some fun in this. Um, have you heard about this cinnamon toast crunch situation, Suze? I, I, it's very complicated. It's, it's not without, it's not without its controversy. I have. I, I it, yeah, go ahead. Do you want to recap it for the well, people? Well, sure, sure, sure. Um, so long story short, sometime a few weeks ago, a man sits down to his favorite breakfast, cinnamon toast crunch, and he has a bowl full of it, enjoying it, loves it. And then he thinks, I'm up for a little bit more today. I'm going to pour a second bowl. He pours the second bowl and he, there he is shaking the cereal box over his bowl. And along with the tasty little cinnamon toast crunchies comes a shrimp tail. Make that two shrimp tails. Two, yeah. They too are covered in the cinnamon, just doing their best to blend in with the crunchies. <laughs> but they are clearly <laughs> shrimp tails. No denying it. So this guy, his name is Jensen Carp. He said in a New York Times article about it, yes, the tails of the shrimp tails have made it to the New York Times. Oh my God. Jensen Carp said he's medicated for OCD and this really grossed him out. So this was like a total nightmare for him. Yeah. He took a picture of it. He went online to a form submission on the General Mills site and he shared it, hoping he might warn them of some contamination. And then he posted the picture on Twitter and tagged Cinnamon Toast Crunch. They got back to him via Twitter and issued this statement. After further investigation with our team that closely examined the image, it appears to be an accumulation of the cinnamon sugar that sometimes can occur when ingredients aren't thoroughly blended. The statement read, we assure you there is no possibility of cross-contamination with shrimp. Well, that just made the situation worse because Mr. Carp tweeted back, okay, well, with further investigation with my own eyes. These are cinnamon coated shrimp tails, you weirdos. I wasn't all that mad until now you tried to gaslight me. So after his tweet started making the rounds, he got a call from a friend who suggested that he dig deeper into the box of cereal. He literally said I had like, I, it never even crossed my mind to go back into the bag. Huh. Never crossed my mind. But again, he, he did and he looked inside, he felt worse. In addition to the shrimp tails, he found some, quote, shrimp skin looking things, plus a small string, which there have been some wonderings if it was dental floss, something that looked like a little nut, like a pistachio nut, also covered in the cinnamon, and some small black bits baked into the cereal. And these small black bits, he worried, could be rat poop. At the time, because people are speculating that like some rodents may have gotten into, you know, into the mix somewhere at the factory. Okay. I, yeah. I'm going to just interrupt you for yeah. just a moment to say what? that. So, so, and you, if I'm jumping your spark, please stop I'll me. tell please you. Please do stop I'll me. I'll tell you. So I, I stopped, I, I, I was on this, <laughs> I was watching this happen, go down on Twitter and yeah. I stepped off once people started to come forward and say, this guy is an abusive person and i was like oh. oh 
if this is a bit that I don't, I didn't know if it was a bit that a comedian was doing or if this was genuine, but I was just like, oh, I don't want to give this person any more airtime because he sounds abusive. But so I stepped off and I am, I did not know these details that you're now sharing with me because I had stepped off and I am totally grossed out right now. It's just, I'm just having a visceral it's, it's totally gross. Totally gross. And to know that you already ate a bowl of it. Like that oh is what's so gross. Yeah. But yeah, um, he does, he is a comedian. His wife is an actress. So there were those people who jumped on board to, yeah. you know, yeah. accuse him of being funny or get attention. I hadn't read the abusive part. I certainly don't want to shine a light, you know, any grander on him, but my spark is really more about cereal. So we'll come back to that. But <laughs> he says, I'm a comedy writer, but like, there's no joke here to take down my favorite cereal brand. I don't even know why that's a funny joke. I love Cinnamon Toast Crunch. It's the only cereal I eat. I own the Kyrie Irving Cinnamon Toast Crunch Nikes. Yes, there are. I looked it up. There are Nike shoes designed by Kyrie Irving called Cinnamon Toast Crunch. No joke. Wow. So he says, no, you know, he didn't, it's not a joke according to him. But Uh um, at the moment, he's trying to get all of it tested, like in a lab tested, so that he cannot be told by General Mills that it's nothing. He wants to know for sure. Again, he got the most upset by the gaslighting, which I understand, like how infuriating Uh for the company to be like, it's not shrimp tail. Um, but his wife remembered that they bought a two pack of cinnamon toast crunchies from Costco. So they were two. So they checked out the other bag of cereal and they noticed what looked like clear tape along the bottom of the plastic bag. Oh. So that one may have been tampered with. Tampered with. Yeah. Yeah. But he continued to have this back and forth with General Mills, who then suggested that he send the materials to them. But he was like, no, I'm nervous to send the contents to General Mills and never see them again, right? He said, I'm definitely holding on to one of them. I'm not considering legal action for now. Obviously, if I ate rat poop, we're going to have to readdress that. But so he's having that tested. But he says he's frustrated with how General Mills handled the situation. He said, all you have to do is say, this is such a bummer. We're going to look into it. We're going to recall the ones from Costco. Like, it's such an easy PR thing to do. But instead, they basically wanted to gaslight me. So he insists that he is merely concerned for consumer safety. He said, I just want to fix it, you know, for other people. He said, citing the possibility that shrimp could contaminate the cereal of people with shellfish allergies or who keep kosher. He says, I'm not even trying to, like, say, be better or whatever. I'm literally just saying, go investigate it. So ongoing investigation ensues. The story We'll continues. have to do some updates along, you know, along the way to see how this story develops. But yeah, but this got me thinking, just the whole, all the cereal, it got me thinking about a few stories that I've been sparked by thanks to the History Channel's The Food That Made America. Have you ever watched that? I have not. Suze. So as they describe it, these food barons were just like Rockefeller, Ford, Carnegie, and other tycoons that built America from the ground up. But these guys applied those skills in the, frankly, rather cutthroat food industry. So Mm. caveat here on my story. We may have feelings about prepackaged food now 
and the movement back towards eating whole foods and only whole foods, which is, you know, to be honest, in and of itself, a very privileged conversation. But the truth of the matter is that the invention and distribution of prepackaged foods literally built the U.S. economy. It allowed people mm. to live in cities in the first place. It kept soldiers and civilians from starving during World War I and World War II, and eventually made it possible for women to enter the workforce. So, dear listeners, I ask you to set aside any prejudgments or current thinking about food conglomerates and go with me for a moment to their origins. Just to unpack a <laughs> tiny bit of that. So when like thousands of people arrived on the shores of the U.S. ready to live and work in this new glorious country, many of them settled where they arrived. In New York City, for example, there's no ability to farm your own land or have right. your own cattle, you bought right. or traded food at the market. Nothing lasted more than a day. So you'd go to the market mm. every single day for that day's food. Sometimes even the food at the market was rotten. People were in need of sustenance that would not go bad immediately. That reality was one of the first signs that food that could exist on your shelf for more than a day was essential to the growing population and to the economy. Mm. There are many more reasons, but I'll get to those. So let me begin my story with Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Do you know anything about this, Suze? I, it's been a minute, uh -huh. but it, it's, uh -huh. it's a little, if I remember correctly, it's, I guess, by it, in its, in uh -huh. it, when it was current day, I'm sure it seems state of the art, and now it just seems batshit crazy. Yes. 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 And it is yeah. its own spark. <laughs> it will set, yes, it is its own spark, but I will give you a small taste of that spark. So try to stay with me because these folks have woven a tale of ambition, espionage, betrayal, and death <laughs> along their path to everlasting grocery store dominance. In the mid to late 1800s, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was one of the country's first doctors focused on overall health, well-being, prevention, all of that. As you'll hear today, he had some good ideas. He also had some terrible ideas, and I'll mention those later. <laughs> but at the time, he was cutting edge. He studied medicine, he published papers in medical journals, and he lectured at well-respected universities and was considered legit. And, you know, he gained the trust of many, many followers. He considered himself a health reformer. His focus was to improve the mind, body and soul through a program he called biologic living. And he taught people the tenets of his program at the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. The Battle Creek Sanitarium was part European spa, part hydrotherapy institution, part hospital, and part high-class hotel. Here, everything from nutrition to exercise to mental well-being was addressed. The sanitarium attracted incredibly influential people, including Amelia Earhart, Sojourner Truth, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Presidents Warren G. Harding, yeah. and William Howard Taft, Mary yeah. Todd Lincoln, as well as a man named C.W. Post. But back to him in a moment. Keeping in mind that Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was ahead of his time in terms of some of his work, the breathing exercises, the vegetarian diets, the exercise, the gut health research he did, he was also completely off the mark in other ways, 
Let me just name a few. <laughs> he was for a daily enema, daily enema oh, to clean out your oh, bowels. God. He was for sexual abstinence and zero masturbation. Wow. His food was deliberately bland because he believed it should be bland in order to minimize excitement, sexual arousal, and masturbation. Oh, he sounds like a party. So it's so interesting. He connected the food to getting excited oh my God. and wanting to get down. <laughs> yeah. According to Wikipedia, as a leader of the anti-masturbation movement, this is awful. This is awful. I also should do, I should say a trigger warning about a few things in my, um, I should say that now. I should have said that earlier, but trigger warning. As a leader of the anti-masturbation movement, Kellogg promoted extreme measures to prevent masturbation. He circumcised himself uh -uh. at age 37. His methods for rehabilitation of masturbators included measures up to the point of mutilation without anesthetic on both sexes. Uh-uh. No. No. Hands off. Oh, my God. John Harvey Kellogg, hands off. In addition, John Harvey Kellogg was outspoken on his beliefs in race and segregation. He was, in fact, in favor of segregation and believed that immigrants and non-whites would damage the gene pool though he himself raised several black foster children, which is interesting. How did you do that? Did you segregate your children? Wow. I don't know. There's a lot of questions here. And suffice to say, I didn't want to give it all up at the front because you would know that Dr. John Harvey Kellogg is our villain. So I didn't necessarily <laughs> want it. You know, I wanted you to sort of figure that out. But listen, we're, we're limited on time here. He's not a great guy. We've got vaccines to get. <laughs> He's not, a, not a great guy, despite a few, you know, a few good ideas. Now, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg had a brother, Will Kellogg. John was the medical expert, but Will really ran the place. He had sales experience, a marketing mind, and he was very strategic in his thinking. The two of them had an incredibly contentious relationship. And now that we know what we know about John, I, I guess it's kind of easy to imagine not getting along with him, but I digress. John was the older brother and was apparently rather condescending to his younger brother. He could be abusive and certainly did not encourage Will in any way. Now, one of the ways that the sanatorium helped people who were staying there was through nutrition. They developed and produced various foods on property. Things like peanut butter is said to have originated there and granola, and eventually cornflake cereal. One of Will's great they ideas- They didn't invent peanut butter though. They may have manufactured it there, but they didn't invent it. They, they're actually, I read about it. There's like four different people in the world that kind of take credit for the invention of peanut butter. Got it. And they- well, who knew? Yeah. So There's another spark for yeah, another day. Peanut butter. Who knew? So one of Will's great ideas was to sell the food products that their patients ate while visiting the sanitarium, which makes wow. sense. You know, once you get home, yeah. of course, you yeah. want to continue your yeah. program of eating well. <laughs> right. So he continually pestered his brother, John, to let him take the cereal and sell it to the general public. But John always said no, always. And this was like a real point of contention between them. Huh. So remember how I said a man named C.W. Post stayed at the sanitarium? C.W. Sure Post. I do. Well, while there, he also thought 
damn, this granola breakfast I'm eating should be sold everywhere. I could make a freaking fortune on this. So one night he sneaks down to the kitchen and he steals the <gasps> recipe. He later oh. took his product, which he called oh. grape nuts, to market. Oh. And he sells these grape nuts for their health values and claims that grape nuts can cure all kinds of ailments. And he <laughs> makes millions of dollars. Oh, my God. Millions of dollars. So Will is furious, obviously. God, I Again, I just say, and we talked about this when you did your spark about those, like those men of, yes. of history, yes. like, like, you the know, Titans the of and America. the Rockefellers yes. and all the Titans. I bet all of these guys were such dicks. Like, yes. just dicks. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'll, we'll talk more yeah. about their dickishness later, but they, <laughs> yeah, you had to have this ruthlessness that was like, yes. Fuck everybody. Because I CW see Post became like a big brand. That and and I'm mm -hmm. like, oh. Oh <laughs> yeah. Like that you know, there might be like this folk I don't know what their logo was, but like this folksy sort of like a picture of I'm thinking of the yes. W B Mason uh, uh yeah. supply guy yeah. who looks like Matthew Broadwick with a handlebar <laughs> mustache and like old timey hair parted down the middle. And it looks just like sort of like, you know, uh, it, it, but they're all Dicks. Yeah. They're all just dicks. And I just think it's so, this is all History Channel, by the way. They're amazing because the way they told those <laughs> stories and they're making more yeah. of them now, which I am so glad they changed the name. Um, I noticed that Leonardo DiCaprio became a producer. I'm not sure at what point, but they changed the name from The Men Who Made America to The Titans Who Made America. So I'm hoping they'll wow. include some other stories in there. Um, yes, yes, yes. But these men were... Yeah, they were ruthless. And these monopolies that they created did not, you know, it wasn't just the railroad. It wasn't just steel. So it was cereal. It was, it was grape cereal nuts, baby. too. So grape nuts are so weird. Anyway, grape nuts are so weird. But now we know they came from John Harvey Kellogg, not CW yeah. Post. Yeah. So Will was furious furious about grape nuts getting out there and they weren't the ones selling it. And he continued to push and push and push his brother. Right. But no, John would say no, still he would say no, but eventually John hit a rough patch financially at the sanitarium and he considered closing up shop. Things got pretty bad. And instead Will came to him and said, my God, will you let me buy the rights to the cornflakes that we make? Let me sell them to the world. I'll do it on my own. Just let me pay you for the rights so I can take it and do it. And yeah. finally, not excitedly and not super willingly, John agreed. He was not psyched about it, but he was kind of boxed into a corner. He needed the money and had no other choice. So he was resentful, but he said yes. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. Will goes about building his business. One of the things he needs to do is set up for mass production of these cornflakes. Believe it or not, cornflakes, not something to be taken for granted, Suze. They're not something that anyone had ever made before. And they were actually made by mistake. They're just a mix-up happened. They were, they were creating these little batches of this dough and they kept running it through a roller to try to flatten it out. And it just turned into mush. But one time they made a mistake, like something interrupted their process. Mm. 
And Mm -hmm. they were like, well, that batch is gone. And they leave it, they come back. And when it had dried, it had made these little flakes. And they were like, you know, Eureka. So what you need though, to make a lot of these little flakes is an enormous, like huge roller that would crush and flatten and cut the wheat and the ingredients. And so when it dried, those little flakes would happen. So Will works with a manufacturer to design he literally helps to design these enormous roller machines and gets them made. Hmm. He sets up his factory and remember he was a shrewd marketer. So he puts the name Kellogg's on every box and he pays for ads all over the country, billboards, million dollar advertising campaign based on the name Kellogg, which is his name for sure. So he has Mm -hmm. every right to Mm -hmm. do it. But he also knows he is playing on the fact that people all over the country know the name thanks to the work of his brother, the famous Dr. Kellogg. The cereal takes off. It's huge. Will doesn't sell it based on its medicinal values. He sells it as food. Like this is a legit meal. And he makes millions. Kellogg's cornflakes are a huge hit. In fact, they're such a hit that a thousand like new cereal companies take off and try to compete. It's estimated, it, I just exaggerated, it's estimated that 42 cereal companies were launched in the breakfast boom of the early 20th century. The breakfast really? boom. Yes. And Battle Creek, Michigan was the epicenter of the cereal world. Huh. But I, of those 42 companies that took off to compete with Kellogg's cornflakes, I will speak of two very real competitors to Kellogg's. First, Will's own brother, John. Apparently the money problems at the sanatorium have continued and John decides to get himself into the cereal business. Maybe to spite his brother, maybe to save his business, maybe both, we'll never know. But he starts producing his own cereal and he puts Kellogg's on every box, trying to take advantage of the work his brother Will has done. So just just to recap for you, John does some work as a medical professor, professional. Will takes advantage of John's work in his work and capitalizes it. Then John capitalizes on Will's work that capitalizes on Uh John's work. So Uh we're all caught up. So he starts producing his own cereal. Um, It all says Kellogg's. Customers are confused and it doesn't matter to them. They buy either one. As long as it says Kellogg's, they don't know the difference. So Will is about to lose his mind. He decides (laughs) it's time to resolve this age old feud once and for all. And he takes his brother to court. An ugly, ugly legal battle ensues. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg claims that Will used his success as a medical doctor to build his business. He Mm. shows receipts for his medical degree, his medical papers, claiming that he's the expert and he should have the rights to market the Kellogg name. Will shows up in court with the actual receipts for billboards around the country, for ads in all Mm. the major magazines, the Ladies Home Journal, for instance. They were ballsy in their advertising, too. They even ran a campaign with ads that were anonymous that told newspaper readers to wink at your grocer and see what you get. 
And anyone who winked at their grocer got a free sample of Kellogg's cornflakes. This promotion led to an increase in sales 15 times over. Just oh wink at my. your grocer and see what you get. And right? they coordinated that with the grocery With the grocery stores. stores. Yep. Amazing. Oh, my God. That's an amazing viral campaign Isn't before it? such a thing existed. Exactly. I think Will's marketing Whoa. mind is a spark in and of itself. So in court, Will's argument is for all the promotion he has paid to establish the Kellogg name, he should have rights to market the product under the Kellogg name. He's paid for it. He's made it a household name. It should be his. Who do you think won the battle, Suze? The Battle of Battle Creek. The Battle uh, of Battle Creek. I don't know. Will Kellogg, the younger brother, wins the legal battle, claiming that everyone knew the name of Kellogg because of the investment in advertising that he had wow. made. The court rules that his brother John must stop using the Kellogg name, must <gasps> pay all legal fees, and... Oh must give his brother all the profits he made from selling his cereal. This wow. is a brutal family battle. It sounds like they both brutal. lost. Everybody lost is who lost. I, no, Will got it all. But their family was just blown to pieces. Well, yeah, but I don't think, <laughs> oh, that. They, oh, that. <laughs> I don't think they had a great relationship to, to begin with. But yes. It doesn't sound like it. It doesn't you, sound like right. John was, was easy. Oh, God. So, wow. So now that's settled. Will has handled that. But now he must turn his attention to the other viable competitor, C.W. Post the guy who stole the granola recipe from them, and the oh, guy who oh. is now making a cornflake cereal as well, known as oh, Post Toasties. Shit. Post Toasties. Right? You've heard of that, right? Post Toasties. So this guy, this guy, Suze, this is what, like you were saying earlier, this, all of these guys really, there were no limits. It was such an era of greed, of opportunity, yeah with nothing but potential to make money. And, you know, just like we mentioned, not unlike the battle for the railroads between Rockefeller and Carnegie, or the battle for electricity between Thomas Edison, Westinghouse, and Tesla, this guy, C.W. Post, realizes that in order to make cornflakes, he is going to need some of those big roller machines that I told you about. The ones mm. that Will Kellogg helped design. So go with me here. What does he do? He buys the machines from the one and only company that makes them. And he pays them for an exclusive contract. They are not allowed to sell the machines to anyone else ever. So are you with me there? The machines that Will designed for the creation of cornflakes, CW Post CW comes Post in, has cock blocked, has cock everybody blocked everybody else's use of that machine. That is correct. That is correct. Fuck. And so now he has a monopoly on the cornflakes. But Will <laughs> Kellogg should be fine, monopoly. right? Because he already has his roller machines. He already has his cornflake machines, right? He's all set. But no, 
1907, a fire burns down his entire factory, all of it, to the ground. And inside are the big steel rollers. When Will attempts to get his business back up and running, he calls the company that makes the machines, the company (gasps) that he worked with to design the machines. And they say, so sorry, we can't sell any roller machines to any new clients. CW Post owns the exclusive rights to them. Well, wow. Poor Will. He's furious. It feels like through this whole story, Will is nothing but furious. So now he's beyond furious. Whatever whatever beyond furious is, he is it. And he (laughs) fucking, like he helped create the damn things. So he stews on this a bit. And then he calls that company back and he goes, wait, did you say you can't sell to new clients? And they say, that's right. He says, but I'm not a new client. I'm an existing client. I'm an old client. Your contract doesn't say anything about repairing old machines, does it? And in fact, it did not. So he goes into the ashes of his old building (gasps) and literally pulls out what is left of those roller machines. Yeah. And he gets them operating again. Suze, the show, this is all like, again, thanks to the History Channel. The, this show, like it points it points this out, but but this was really the age of the robber baron. And I've heard the phrase robber baron, but I'd never really thought about it too much. But it is the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts. It applies to wealthy industrialists, typically in the 19th century, who made their fortunes by monopolizing their industry, railroads, oil, steel, banking. The food industry has their own robber barons. It was by any means necessary that these guys made this happen. So in the end, another um, trigger warning here, in the end, things did not fare well for CW Post. CW Post, who originally went to the sanitarium because he was unwell, yeah. Continued to suffer gastric problems, nervous breakdowns, and at the age of 59, he took his own life. Oh. Like to add to the pain of like this illness that he'd been carrying for decades, he also felt so much shame that none of his own products, the ones he touted as healthy mm. remedies for all ailments, none of them could save him. So he had this extra burden on himself, self-created essentially, because of all the claims that he made about his products. Now, CW may have been ruthless in business, but he does an extraordinary thing when he dies. He leaves most of his wealth and complete control of his company in the hands of his 27-year-old daughter. Oh. Suze, I want you to remember this is 1914. Women do not even have the right to vote, not allowed to go vote in national elections. But here she is. She's going to come into the boardroom and tell these guys what to do. And she does. Her name is Marjorie Merriweather Post. Mm. 
and she takes the company to extraordinary new heights. She's a visionary leader. Long before food conglomerates are a thing, she directs her company to start buying up other companies. They acquire Maxwell House Coffee, Log Cabin Syrup, Jell-O, Hellman's Mayonnaise. Holy moly. She also buys Bird's Eye Frozen Foods outright, and she is single-handedly responsible for refrigeration becoming a thing in our grocery stores and in our households, which is a story and a spark in and of itself. In fact, I really want someone to give us a great story of Marjorie Merriweather Post. She was, in her time, the richest woman in the world. She ran an enormous corporation at the time when like less than 20% of college graduates were women. She was a huge advocate for women. She married four times. She built glorious homes around the world. Suze, she built Mar-a-Lago. That was her oh. vision. Someone oh. please give us a great mini series about her. I want turn of the oh century. My. I want robber barons. I want the cutthroat competition. And I want a woman to walk away the victor. That's not too much to ask. That's a great fucking mini series right there. I'm casting it over here. Okay. I'm casting it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now back to the battle between Will and John Kellogg. Will succeeds in writing his brother out of history, essentially. Wow. The company Kellogg's, you know, if you look, they they've done a good job also of separating will from john and i think uh, obviously based on what we know about john's um beliefs good idea to separate from from him and let him fade into obscurity will is the sole creator of kellogg's company which is worth over 22 billion dollars today oh MG. Those two brothers continued to battle it out their whole lives. John eventually lost the sanitarium and faded into the background. However, Suze, I found this little story, which just adds to the family tragedy. Apparently, when he was in his 90s, John Harvey Kellogg prepared a letter to reach out to his younger brother to try to repair the relationship. Wow. I want to give him this some story's credit. got everything. I know. Cause I want to be like, what if in that letter, like he admitted that he was wrong about certain ideas I, in my, my best self wants to believe that John Harvey Kellogg had, you know, ha came to some conclusions near the end of his life that he was wrong about some things, but he prepared this letter to go out to his younger brother, but his secretary read it. And his secretary determined that John had demeaned himself in the writing of the letter <gasps> and refused to send it. Will did not see or know of this letter's existence until after his older brother's death. Come on. That's a movie moment right there. Oh, my God. Do you know, did the secretary notify her 
boss that I don't she know. wasn't sending it? Or was she just I like, I'm know. just going to tuck this into a drawer? I think that needs Ugh. investigation. And I think also, you know, in the fictionalized version, like, yeah, which what's best to be, what's best for the yes. dramatization of it? Because if she went in and was like, I refuse to send this, he'd be like, send it. Send it. You'd be somebody else. He'd put a stamp Someone on it else himself and walk it down to the mailbox. Exactly. Amazing. Exactly. Amazing. I think it was more secretive. And so he laid I there. I'm imagining he laid there waiting to hear back from his brother, Will, and never did. Wow. Uh, so what do we make of it, friends? Well, <laughs> come on. There are tales for sure. I seriously want that miniseries. Uh, no joke. Many. It is like <sighs> the crown, but for cereal. Yes. The crown, but for cereal. You get, think of it. This story does have everything. Industrial, espionage, um, like people, people die drama. in their pursuit of it. Family drama, um, yes. controversy. There have been books I've written. I've got some casting. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. You. Let me just tell me, let no. me tell you this and then yeah, we'll yeah. talk casting. But there have been yeah, books yeah. written. Um, the Kellogg's, The Battling Brothers of Battle Creek, and the book mm. and movie called The Road to Wellville, which was 25 <gasps> years or so. You might remember that. That starred Anthony Hopkins. I remember Anthony that, Hopkins. but I never saw it. So it it's not a great... I read this whole article about how the people of Battle Creek were so excited for this movie to come out because it they thought it was going to be about their glory and the, the you know, the glory days oh. of the, the serial boom and their part in it, but it wasn't, it's, it's kind so, of a far off crazy. It's more about the crazy character kind of based on John Harvey. Um, uh -huh. So it's not, it's not really, but it's, it's a work of art uh, based, you know, inspired by this Luke and Owen Wilson did an episode of drunk history about it. Um, I was. I had that in my casting list. Ah, I have them on my casting list. Yes, Luke and Owen Wilson. That's amazing. I, personally, I think the robber barons of the food industry need a musical, and it might not be these cereal wars, <laughs> but I, I, we could do a whole other spark on Hershey and Mars, the candy, the candy barons, because they have a fascinating story. Also on the History Channel's The Food That Made really? America. Hershey amazing. and Mars, amazing, amazing. And then, of course, Marjorie Post is a spark in and of herself. I mean, there's just so yeah. much there. This is just tip of the iceberg. Do you want to talk casting? Let's talk casting. Uh, here's, here's I, I'm looking, I just quickly Googled what they look like, and I know their appearances change throughout the course <laughs> of their lives. But I was like, Bo and Jeff Bridges. Bo and Ooh. Jeff Bridges for the Kellogg's. And I'm giving you, I'd like to, I'd like to get asks out to Ed Harris <laughs> and um, maybe Will Patton for CW Post. <gasps> wow. Let's get those asks out and then we'll get to work. Let's roll up our sleeves and write <laughs> the damn thing. Let's do it. Oh, Let's man. do it. I just did a quick Google of Marjorie Merriweather Post. Uh -huh. And um, what I didn't realize, there's, I feel like there's a lot of um, potential people uh -huh. for her. Yeah. But what I didn't realize is that her daughter, mm -hmm. socialite, heiress and motion picture actress dina merrill yes was uh she was a great philanthropist and yes. she donated a bunch to the eugene o'neill theater center <gasps> where i do a lot of work she and, did. and they have a whole they have a whole facility the dina merrill and i oh, oh i can't gosh. tell you how many hours 
how many hours and how many shows have we developed? How many classes have I taught? Dina Merrill. How many songs have I sung in the Dina Merrill? Sue, that's amazing because I was like, should I try to fit that into the spark? And thought I got to cut it off because there's so I've, many branches I've it in for to this you. thing. There's but so many branches to the she, spark. Dina Merrill also in her 60s formed RKO Pictures. She and her husband. No yes. Yes. She grew up, I read this thing that was like, she grew up, well, one Mar-a-Lago that has, you know, like a hundred and some bedrooms. <laughs> That's blowing my mind. She grew up in like um, a penthouse in New York City that has like 86 rooms. Another, <gasps> you know, like, like you just can't conceive of what her life was like. It was very, very, very different. You know what this is? Yes. You know what this is, Laura Kim? What is this? It's a spark to puss. <laughs> it's a spark to puss <laughs> that shoots out into so many different directions. Amazing. It's our first truly labeled spark to puss. Now I feel like we could go back and look at all of our sparks and be like, that's a spark to puss. That's a spark to puss. I, I mean, love it. This is crazy. So this is crazy. Listen, I know we've got vaccines to get to, but I will just say this. My mind goes to, oops, my mind goes to food industry reform too. Like thinking about those shrimp ah. tails in the cinnamon toast crunch. I, I think about the fact that growing up, I was always taught that anything on the grocery shelves was safe. They wouldn't sell it if it wasn't. Like there, w it was this era of trust right. in big corporations and trust in the FDA. And I do wonder if we've come a bit full circle and we're now living in an age when the conglomerates have way too much power. What is one small individual to do if they find shrimp tails in their cereal or any contamination in their food? I don't have an answer to that, but I am going to keep my eyes on that story of carp and the test, the lab test results. There's something fishy going on there. Oh my God. You <laughs> built a whole spark around that pun. I didn't. Shame I didn't. on you. That came at the last minute. Shame on me. you. You're like, I wrote this at midnight. <laughs> Cut me a fucking break. Cut me a break. Listen, sometimes I've been, my, can I just say my mom's like dorky jokes have been popping into my mind a lot lately and I've just been going with it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to say it. And then I just do it like, thanks mom. I miss you. And that's I honor a, my mother. With, with these cheesy oh jokes, cheesy jokes. Oh my so that's God. my It's so funny. I also wrote Serial Wars. I feel like Serial yes. Wars is one name of this mini series. But I love when I was like, even before you said the name of the book, I was like the Battle of Battle Creek. Yes, but the Battling Brothers of Battle the Creek. The Battling that, Brothers I, specifically, oh but God. there's so many battles of Battle Creek because of of this um, serial boom. Amazing. Or y'all could just name whatever you're going to make spark to puss and the give us a quarter. Spark to puss. Like when the what, when the mini series called Spark to Puss airs, Susan, I don't even know what we're going to do to celebrate, but it's going to be pretty extraordinary. <laughs> it's on tonight. We launched tonight. We're going to eat. We're going to have a big cake made that looks like a spark to puss. <laughs> And it's sort of like an octopus, but it's covered in sparklers and it just shoots <sighs> flames and smoke rises out of it like a volcano. Listen, let's take a quick break. And then okay. I have got a, a big spark okay. to drop yes. in your lap. Okay. Yes. See you in a moment. Okay, bye. The spark fire. Okay. I'm so, so <laughs> <laughs> My spark to puss. 
That was a good sparktopus. Oh my goodness. I have to write that down. It's so fascinating. It's like put it in your spark file. It's it's a, when people just prioritize that you know, that ambition and that gain and all mm -hmm. of that over everything. Relationships and it, it's it I think what an interesting human makeup. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Cut to us 20 years from now, and we're just like, I own 51% of this sparktopus, and <laughs> God is my witness, you can claw it out of my dead cold hands. Uh, I just think different industries, you know, there are certain industries that are still right, that are in that moment. It's just that, you right. know, turn of the century was so chock full of it for in this America. is a different spark for yeah. a different day but i that's one of the reasons i love there's a book that I, maybe i'll do as a spark one day because i really do get a lot out of it called get rich lucky bitch yes by denise stuffield thomas and she talks about you know if you have a narrative in your mind that wealthy people that affluent people can only be like the Cruella de Vils and the, <laughs> you know, the CW posts of the world. It's, it really, Cold that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it doesn't have to be that way. And I, right. I love that. Think of Dina Merrill. I, think of Dina Merrill. Think, who then, well, what she did I, with I her money. I feel like Dina Merrill, I'm sure she also contained multitudes and who knows, maybe she was like the warmest, kindest, um, uh, you know, she had a sense of abundance, but you know, maybe she was also trouble. Who knows? We don't know, but I mean, we just know she did some good things with her money. We'll find out. We'll find out when we watch that uh, miniseries that some listener is going to write. That's right. Um, but Cams, yes. the clock is ticking. We need to get you vaccinated, and I've got a big spark okay. for you. So shall okay. we dig in? Okay, give it to me. I'm so excited. It's so funny because we were talking before we started recording about how both of us <laughs> need to get better about checking our Sparkfile email account and how things can sort of fall through the cracks. Yeah. So I don't even know if you saw this. <laughs> that's a that's isn't that a wonderful thing for us to admit? But um, I don't even Sorry. know if you saw this email. <laughs> Our apologies. There was an email that came in this week, and I don't even know if you saw it. And I'm kind of hoping that you didn't, but okay. we'll find out. So a listener named David Young wrote to us, and David sent along a great price of admission. This is David's price of admission. In addition to his YouTube channel, where he's been posting new content, he's been writing music. He's written three art songs for his wife so she can sing a complete set of his work at her master's recital. I did not see which this. I was like, this is amazing. It's, like, it's a gift for her. It's a gift from her back to him. It's just the best. The gifts keep so, going. So you haven't seen this email? I have not seen this email. This is fantastic. Well, this is one of the benefits of us needing to pull our, our heads out of our asses. <laughs> Great. So uh, David wrote in this fantastic spark. It's just a world-class spark. It's so useful. It's so actionable. And here is the kick in the pants. When he emailed me, I was literally in the middle of writing a spark that directly explored the spark that David sent. Oh, my. And I was like, David... <laughs> Are you standing behind me now? It was so freaky, Camion. Wow. What can I say? Great, great mind. Wow. So thank you, David Young. Thank you, David. Isn't that nuts? I've never had such a thing happen. That's so amazing. with that, I bring you this spark, which bears the David Young spooky seal of synchronistic approval. And this spark 
is on the feedback process. Ooh! Oh, I'm intrigued. Yes, you know I love this topic. I know you do, and we've talked a lot about this, and the spark is a long time in the making. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so get Enjoy. ready. I'm, I'm so ready. As we have discussed, I think probably on and off mic, feedback can be a totally mixed bag. On one hand, I think it can be essential to the development of creative work, mm-hmm. and... I'm also sure that there are people who can and do and have advanced their work without it. I I think, listen, I've done zero (laughs) research on this, but I I think to myself, did Pablo Picasso need or accept creative feedback on his work? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. My instincts just, again, not research-based, but my instincts tell me that it seems like he might have been the kind of person that would have told people to fuck right off and then kept his own counsel and painted whatever the fuck he wanted to paint. But for most of us, feedback can be essential to the advancement of our creative work. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about so many aspects of this before. We've discussed who holds the measuring stick when it comes to your creativity. Do you hold it? Do you, uh, do you empower other people to assess you? And we've also talked about, Laura, you and I have very different tolerances for <laughs> feedback. And both of those approaches can have some awesome parts uh-huh. and some awesome parts. Uh-huh. There's upsides and downsides to both. 100%. Now, you have said this before, but it seems like you were encouraged from a very young age to take it all, to take all the feedback. Is that correct? Well, I think as a child of a narcissist, you take everything on as your own. It's your fault. So yes, if any, if a teacher gave some feedback, everything was met with like, well, Laura, what did you do to contribute to that? So it must have been something I Ah. did. It must have been me. And so it took me a long time to get to where I'm like, oh, this one isn't mine. This one is your, (laughs) this one is the person who's speaking. Yeah. That makes sense. Have you also talked about, am I making Mm -hmm. this up? Totally possible Mm -hmm. that be having uh, your dad being a coach, you were also taught like to be coached. I was 100% taught to be coached. I'm so freaking coachable. It's ridiculous. Yes. Taught to be coached. But I would also say my experience at Blue Man Group, where we were a collaborative creative organization, was probably the most impactful because it was like, no, nothing was going to get created with a singular voice. The belief was that more mm. voices, better, better outcome. Mm. Well, one brain, like two brains are better than one. And so mm-hmm. I was trained uh, just 100, anything I wrote was going to get, was going to have input from 10 people and just, it, it just builds your tolerance, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I will say all through school, acting school, undergrad, graduate school, I took so much feedback and we were really conditioned to take it. Yeah. There's a certain ethos in in certain creative educational cultures where they the it's sort of I don't know if they do this anymore. So I don't know if this is past it's, tense, but I'm the idea curious. was we break you down uh-huh. and we build you back up, that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't know if that really flies anymore. I was going to add uh, just real quick to that, and I don't want to jump your spark, so tell me if I am, but I also, like in college, same thing, like lots and lots of notes, Yeah, but I was like, this trained me to be like, I can take it when there's um, 20 negative notes. Those nights where like my director would say, great, 
that was amazing. No notes. And I'm like, no, but you have to have notes. But there's, oh, there must be it. something wrong. No, tell me what else I can do. And I finally had a, an instructor say, is it possible, Laura? Is it possible that this comes easy to you? And there doesn't mm. need to be a greater list of things. It reminds me of, it reminds me of the big leap. It reminds yeah. me of your set point yeah. for comfort about I'm comfortable because of the way I grew up. I'm comfortable with lots yes. of this kind of feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Criticism. Yeah. And then I know I'm like, oh, okay, good. Mm -hmm. We're both paying attention here because you have lots of notes for me. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Because that, that was my Interesting. mom. Yeah. Here's, lot, here's a list of things to fix. So. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Uh, in my experience as a professional actor, I also took a lot of feedback, feedback about the work, of course, but also feedback about things like appearance. I remember having a casting director tell me, I could not believe it. I felt like it, I was like, do you know what a cliche you're being right now? They said, if I kept my hair the color that it was, I would never work in this town. What? And I was like, really? And I also remember being told by casting that this famous director that I had auditioned for hated, hated my outfit. And I remember them saying it two times. She hated your outfit. No, I mean like she hated okay. your outfit. And that's why I um, wasn't <laughs> considered for that role. Because of the yeah. outfit because of the outfit. And wow. I just remember this thing started happening where I would just perseverate on those, yeah. per, what I perceived as failures. And over time, I really started shutting down to feedback and bracing, like bracing for impact because mm. I couldn't bear the thought of that sort of repetitive, negative, perseverative thinking and the pain associated with those thoughts that I linked to feedback. And then a client of ours, hi Jess, shared this <laughs> term with us <laughs> that I had never heard before, which is rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And I was like, what are those words? <laughs> what are those words in that order? <laughs> Say more. So, <laughs> so I, I uh, Jess shared some stuff with me and then I did some digging myself. And in an article on goodtherapy.org, a writer named Crystal Raypole writes, no one looks forward to rejection, but many people can weather the emotional blow and recover from it without too much difficulty. Rejection affects people in different ways, though. Not everyone gets over it quickly or easily, Susan puts her hand up. <laughs> in fact, some people experience what's known as rejection-sensitive dysphoria, RSD for short, a severe emotional reaction that makes it particularly challenging to deal with rejection. And I think this also includes critique and criticism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also referred to as rejection sensitivity, this isn't considered an official diagnosis. So I want to make that clear. This is not considered an official diagnosis, but research increasingly suggests it involves much more than being sensitive. Crystal goes on. The most telling marker of rejection-sensitive dysphoria is an extreme response to real or perceived rejection. Most people may experience sadness, disappointment, or frustration after experiencing rejection or critique, but with RSD, rejection or critique can be overwhelming enough to lead to outbursts of rage or panic, mm -hmm. feelings of despair and hopelessness, beliefs that one has failed or disappointed their loved ones, and feelings of shame and humiliation. 
She goes on a little longer. Extreme rejection sensitivity can make it tough to move forward after an experience of rejection. Some people might continue thinking about the rejection throughout the day or into the next, experiencing circling thoughts or even feelings of physical discomfort. And I read that, Cam's, and I was like, I'm familiar with that perseveration, uh-huh. but it can last not just days or weeks, but months mm-hmm. or years. Um, I have had this experience where I can, it can either be like internal, like I'll make a mistake on stage or on camera or external, somebody will say something to me and I will keep returning to it over and over and over again. This has gotten better with lots of therapy and with meditation. Like there are things that I do now that do make it better, Mm -hmm. but it is, I, I read that and I was just like, uh-huh yeah 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 yep, yep, yeah yeah and i yeah. if i could just say to clarify a point from earlier like even though i've had that um training in different ways it has not stopped like things that matter to me if yeah. the more it matters to me and then i get a critique it it can almost shut me down but yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's these, it's for these reasons that both the mental, sort of a mental anguish and sometimes the accompanying physical discomfort, like Crystal describes, for these reasons, these are the reasons why I don't like reading comments online. I don't like Mm -hmm. reading reviews, even good reviews. I don't like hearing other people's assessments. And again, um, I'm getting better at like taking compliments, but I don't love reading positive reviews because I sometimes this thing will happen where it will just repeat in my head. And I'm like, I don't want anybody else holding the measuring stick. Right. Right. This is the reason, Laura, when we issue surveys after, for instance, a workshop or something like that, mm-hmm. I'm like, can you read them first mm-hmm. and then you can share things with me? Yeah. You can, you can, I can hear it from Laura, but I don't necessarily want to read it directly out of a survey or read it in iTunes. And it's also one of the reasons we have a price of admission on this podcast to sort of ensure that everyone who has something that they want to say is in the arena as you and Roosevelt would say. Like that's right. That, that, yeah. You have to have tried something yourself. So you know, you kind of know what, what kind of vulnerability it takes to do. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, here is the rub. I know that in order to get better and in order to advance creative work, feedback is a valuable part of the process. And I also just want to acknowledge, I can't imagine that it's always super fun to have a creative partner with whom you feel like you need to filter so thoughtfully when it comes to feedback. But I I think you know (laughs) that... I'm actively working on it and um, and you and I work on it together. And there are times when I'll like, there are, there are times when I'll get a piece of feedback or what I perceive as feedback. Uh-huh. It doesn't actually have to be feedback. And I'll just be like a little cactus, a little porcupine going doinks <laughs> and like getting better at just having a, more flow with it and well, a, a slightly de-excited nervous system uh, yeah. around it. Not, and not to like, you know, have a therapy session on our podcast, but this is what it looks like, folks. It's um, happening. It's happening. I, I also think that like when you say the thing of perceived feedback, mm-hmm. if you have worked in your past at any point with with people who habitually do not say what they mean, 
you have trained your ear. I'm not saying you in general, we can train our ear for what we think we hear. Is there something in between? Was there something Mm -hmm. unstated that I was supposed to gather from that? Because there are people who, you know, who have a difficult time communicating directly and saying what they mean. Mm -hmm. And so we can move through the world uh, constantly listening for what isn't being said and perceive those things. But I think your, your ear gets trained for it by, you know, by years of uh, certain types of relationships. Totally. And I think both of us are getting better on both sides of that equation where we are getting, we're, we are like, we're just trusting each other more. Nobody's going anywhere. If we have a conflict, it's not going to burn the whole thing down. So we can, we can say what we mean more readily and getting better at also being like, oh, I trust that they're going to speak directly. So I don't have to be so hypervigilant about seeking like what isn't being said. That's right. And we, I feel like you and I check in with each other very directly about that dynamic. And we can ask if we think we heard something, we can say, can you say more about that? I want to make sure I don't misinterpret (laughs) that. Let's double click and expand Uh, that. What was that? Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 All great. But we still, we're getting better at it. And like, I'll just speak for myself. I still have miles to go before I sleep, but I'm working on it. Mm. Um, So I have observed that under certain circumstances, I actually can readily and easily take feedback. So I have been asking myself actively, Mm -hmm. what are those circumstances? Is it when I have more rest? Is it when I have a greater surplus of what Emily Fletcher would call adaptation energy? Take a drink, Emily Fletcher's name. Um, Is it when it's teed up a certain way? Does it depend on the source of the feedback? So I have for a very long time wanted to do a spark around approaches to feedback and to learn Mm -hmm. what options might be the most useful for me, for you, for all Mm -hmm. our little sparklies who are listening out there so that we can ask for and provide feedback that feels to quote the great Laura Camion, like a puzzle piece clicking into place. Oh, yeah, I think so that, that is might my be Laura today. Kenny quoting Leslie Odom Jr. I think it might it might be a quote of a quote of a quote. Two time Academy <laughs> Award nominated Leslie Odom Jr. I'll quote him anytime. Friend of the podcast, <laughs> we're so proud of you, Leslie Odom Jr. Um, so I I have ordered these tools r- very roughly from smallest to largest. Okay, and great. so please enjoy Ooh, the following. Oh, I'm so options. excited. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is, well, at least for me anyway, news you can use. Yes. Like, I, I can't even tell you. So, yes. Um, something that we've learned from our great coach, Jennifer Rosenfeld. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. She's Jennifer. not just a coach, she's a client. <laughs> um, is, is about asking consent before offering feedback. And mm-hmm. so many people that I talk to for this spark, I talked to some great people for this spark, but um, so many people that I spoke to talked about the importance of consent around feedback. It's so simple. It's so elegant. And I have observed that even with established clients, Jennifer will listen to what they're sharing or to the question that they're asking, and then she'll say, may I offer you some thoughts? Now, these are people that are have paid Jennifer money mm-hmm. for Jennifer to offer, offer her thoughts, thoughts. <laughs> and ideate around their work. But 
each time, each time she says something like, may I offer you my perspective or may I offer you my viewpoint? And of course, uh, we, her clients say yes, because she's really insightful and she's very kind. And then she proceeds. But in that momentary exchange of consent, she makes space for kind, honest feedback, which I've seen time and time again, leads to big breakthroughs for people. So that is the first tool in the in the feedback process toolkit, just a simple, may I offer you a thought? Now, you and I are rocking a twist on that, Laura. We have for a long time in our group coaching program and with our private clients, we say, may I offer you something and you can take it or leave it. And I frequently (laughs) add or tell me to go fuck myself to keep it spicy. So that's another (laughs) approach. May I offer you something, you can take it or leave it and tell me to go fuck myself. (laughs) No, may I offer you something, take it or leave it or tell me to go fuck myself. (laughs) Wait, so I can take, take leave it, it or, but I could also leave it and tell you to fuck yourself. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Okay, just checking. (laughs) Pick two out of three. What are my options here? What are my options? (laughs) There you go. So, um, so that's something that we do, and again, it's sort of a more a playful way to build in that consent piece. And we even in our group, we ask our group members to preface any offering that they're going to offer to another member of the group to say that Mm -hmm. it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, um, people always say yes. It's very rare that people say no, but I, in fact, I can't think of one example where people say no, but, um, yeah. But it's good to know, you know, if people do do that and you get yourself into a dicey situation of feedback, it's, you're completely empowered to say, you know, actually I'd like to pull this back. I'm going to take this, go work on it. I'd, I'd rather pause on the feedback right now. Like you're entirely empowered to do that. We're we're going to get to oh, that. Oh, I'm excited. We are going to get to that. Yeah. So, so moving forward, we received a great approach to feedback when we interviewed Bonnie Siegler on this very podcast. Mm-hmm. To refresh your memories, Bonnie is an amazing graphic designer who wrote a book called Dear, among other books, this book called Dear Client. This book will teach you how to get what you want from creative people. Sincerely, Bonnie Siegler, which... <laughs> Again, I say makes for one of the greatest book jackets of all time. And if you recall, Bonnie had a deal with a bookseller in Texas. The bookseller would anonymously send this book wrapped in brown paper to the recipient slash client of your choice, which I think is one of the most baller moves of all time. So amazing. So amazing. She Bonnie is amazing. She She's is. so creative <laughs> and is. so smart and so direct. And Bonnie really knows how to, what works for her in terms of feedback enough that she wrote a goddamn book about it. So she's freaking honest and people count on that. She's direct. She's just, you know where you stand, you know how she feels about it. No bones Uh, about it. It's amazing. Amazing. So when, when the brilliant Bonnie Siegler was on the pod, she said, criticism is always taken more seriously than praise. I'm going to say that again. Criticism is always taken more seriously than praise. In a focus group, if someone criticizes something, the other people in the group might think, I must not be as smart as them because I like it. And it's hard to go against the crowd, which is why Bonnie hates focus groups. But (laughs) she champions an approach simply structured as, I notice, I wonder. And according to Bonnie, this was developed to respond to children's artwork. When you are offering someone feedback, you say, 
I notice without any criticism or judgment inferred. For instance, I notice that it's very colorful, it's very poppy, or I notice that you used a lot of yellow in this. And then moving on to, I wonder what would happen if, which is not saying, I don't like it, make it yellow. She gave, I wonder examples like, I wonder if the scale was larger, or I wonder if it was in a different order, which changes the whole conversation. Per Bonnie, it's inviting dialogue instead of giving commands, mm-hmm. which I love. Yes. I love that. Yes. And another variation on that theme we learned in one of our business classes, Laura, which is I like, I notice, I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. So this I love because it starts with the affirmation of I like. And I actually, I keep this, I'm showing it to you, Cams. I keep this on a post-it note oh, on my computer to nice. remember it because I have to remind myself of its existence because it's so easy, especially when we're super familiar with our collaborators or discussion partners to forget these steps. Yeah. And to illustrate that, um, I, I'm going to tell a story <laughs> it's a blind item. I won't name names, but this past <laughs> summer, I spent a lot of time creating this talk with an accompanying uh, sort of a keynote presentation, PowerPoint presentation. And I did the work, the kind of the heavy lifting on behalf of a group of collaborators. And after we went through it in advance of the live presentation, the collaborators went straight into notes about what adjustments they wanted to see. And then someone thought to say, Oh, good job. Thank you for doing all that work on behalf of the team. And Camion, mm. this is this might be my rejection sensitive dysphoria, but I was I was pissed. Yeah. I was pissed. Yeah. But here's the kicker. I'm guilty of this too. I'm sure I have done this to you, Camion, in the past 72 hours. <laughs> so I am saying this so I will remember it. Yeah. When you follow the I like. And then I notice, and then I'd like to see, I think that feedback is so much easier to hear. It is. And sometimes the I like can be, I like and appreciate all the hard work that you've done on this on behalf of our group. (laughs) Thank you for doing it so I didn't have to do it. I notice that you made a reference to blank, and I'd like to see, or I wonder if it might be more powerful if that reference was changed to blank, like that sort of thing. But man, when we are moving at a, like when the clock is ticking, I I totally forget it. It's like the first thing that goes out the window. It's so fascinating because taking that moment to acknowledge that can save so much time on the back end because you, you can avoid like the, the tension, the resistance, the, you know, all of that, then you have to work on aisle seven seven when, when in actuality, but I, I also think there's something, this is not a fully formed thought, but I think sometimes when we're working with people who we respect and we are assuming they know we respect them, you know, I know you respect me. I know, you know, I respect you. It, it is tempting. Like you can jump right in because there is an assumption of, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of this is great. Of course it's great. There's two <laughs> lines in the third paragraph I, I would like to change. And you, th- I think it's tempting. And I, I say this for everyone and including working 20 years with groups of people at Blue Man. It's, it's like, um, you think you can take a shortcut because you've worked together so long. But what is fascinating is that you cannot take that. Do not take the shortcut. You've got to first say, this is amazing. 
it's so much easier for me to respond to something now that you've put 10 pages on paper. Thank you for doing yes. that. And now yeah. I get to come in with just a, a few wonderings here and there. Wow. Just yes. taking a second yeah. to say that it, it will. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm agreeing. With yes. You, Suze. Yes. Yeah. So there are other ways to organize feedback that make it pleasant and productive to give and receive. I recently had a conversation with a great artist and a teacher named Emery Lucas. Hi, Emery. Hi, Emery. Emery teaches a feedback process that was initially inspired by the work of Edward de Bono. Now, Edward de Bono is just an amazing spark of a human who is considered the father of creative thinking. So we're going to revisit him and, and all of his amazing work on another episode of the mm. pod. What I want to focus on in this spark is what Emery Lucas focused on, Edward de Bono's thinking hats. Mm. It is also worth mentioning that Emery Lucas, Laura, Emery yeah. Lucas is a human spark <gasps> too. Talking with her is just the dreamiest. I feel like she would be a great guest. Oh, maybe podcast. she'll come on. Oh, that would what be a magnificent brain. amazing. So Emery said that feedback can mean so many things. And what we were just discussing, it's so emotional. She said the line between the work and the artist is so blurry. So to separate it and leave the ego totally out of it, it's so challenging. Amen, Emery Lucas. Amen. Emery went on to say that people often mistakenly confuse feedback with advice. But according to Emery, Quality feedback is actually a means to access what other people's experiences of your work is. So offered and received thoughtfully, feedback gives the creative artist a chance to see their work through the eyes of others, yep. which I, I love that. So yep. Emery studied the work of Edward de Bono and specifically this work around thinking hats. And I just want to do, I, I just want to provide a brief summary of Edward de Bono's book. Um, it's called Six Thinking Hats. And this is a summary from readinggraphics.com. This book contains a powerful technique that helps us to explore different perspectives towards a complex situation or challenge, and I'll add, or creative project. It simplifies thinking by creating focus on one thing at a time and allows us to engineer switches in thinking without offending others. Mm -hmm. It has been proven to significantly reduce meeting times. This goes to your point, Cam. Nice significantly reduce meeting times, improve the quality and speed of brainstorming and decision-making, and improve thinking productivity. So each of Edward de Bono's thinking hats represents a different style of thinking. So if you are providing a creative with feedback, you can essentially wear each of the different hats so that you can think about it and provide feedback through those various perspectives. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. here's a quick overview. And I want to note that Edward de Bono defined six thinking hats. I'm going to share four because I've talked with Emery and some other teachers and they feel like these four are the most applicable and useful to creative feedback and in the classroom. Great. Okay. Great. So the red hat represents a gut reaction to the work. What stands out to the responder? Red hat responses might begin with, when I first saw this, I felt blank, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's just like a gut. Red hat is just like, here's my gut response. Here's my visceral emotional response. The yellow hat represents what is working and why. 
what is making the work strong and why is it? Yellow hat responses might begin with, I see that you're meeting the goal of blank because I see blank. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I see that you are meeting the goal of using a lot of bright colors within an eight by 10 format because I see a lot of bright colors in an eight by 10 format, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, the green hat is about creativity, new ideas, and change. So it could include suggestions for meeting the goal, but instead of using the S word, the should word, Emery's mm. <laughs> like, she, when she's teaching middle schoolers, she said, I forbid you to use the S word. And they all giggle, and she says, should. You may not <laughs> use the word should, but you may use words like, could mm -hmm. and what if so green hat responses might begin with you might consider blank because it would blank mm -hmm. so this is about creativity uh, contributing new ideas and change yep. and blue hat is about noticing where the work does not yet meet its goals and what is keeping the work from being strong so blue hat responses might start with it seems that you're not meeting the goal of blank because i see blank so it seems like you're not meeting the goal of using a lot of colors in an 8 by 10 format because i see that this is actually 10 by 12 and it's all in black and white. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, those are very black and white examples, but those are those hats. Can I ask you a quick question? Um, it seems to me, and maybe you're going to get to this, but in order to know whether you're meeting a goal or not, everyone would need to know what are the goals. What the goal is. That's absolutely right, Laura. And that is also another, uh, I'm going to get to this in just a moment, mm -hmm. but it's, it's with a lot of these, um, especially these bigger, um, concepts and structures for feedback that I'm sharing with you now, the responsibility of the creative artist who is sharing the work, the responsibility on them to, contextualize what they need in terms of feedback and things like what the goals are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is, there's more responsibility on the sharer of the work I to just, define those you things. You know, I'm passionate about this because I, I feel like when you, you mentioned that um, Emery said that feedback can be confused with advice sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. it can also be confused with, the desire for engagement and just like some of our processes are lonely and what you're really <laughs> craving is some human connection and some, uh -huh. you know, engagement. And when it's, when you just toss that into a uh, feedback, boy, can things get messy. So having real clarity on, uh, you know, asking yeah. yourself, what is it I want from this? before you jump yeah. in is so is so crucial. But I think you're going to say more about that. So please proceed. Uh, I will. And I will. So there is uh, something that is stressed throughout all of this thinking hats work. It's important that no matter what hat you're wearing, that responders strive to be kind, helpful, and specific, mm -hmm. which I think just flavors yeah. all of it. Yeah. So Emery Lucas spent two years of trial and error taking De Bono's thinking hats, breaking them down, making them more concrete and digestible for middle schoolers so that 
even younger people would be able to latch on to these ways of thinking. Amazing. But if you learned that, this when you were younger, what if we learned amazing. this when we were younger? I, I know. She did it though. She taught this at the STEAM school where she worked with my sister, Julie. Hi, Julie. Julie Hi, is the person Julie. who actually introduced me to Emery. And the cult, the whole culture at the school totally adopted it. And when you walk into that school, the thinking hats are represented everywhere. There are thinking hats the, <laughs> hanging from the ceiling, literally hats that are the colors of the thinking hats that are Amazing. suspended above the classroom. Like it is, it has been totally um, embraced Love by that. this educational culture. And this is how these teachers and students contextualize feedback for, for each other. Emory students got to a point, and Julie says the same thing about her students, they got to a point where they were, they are able to fluidly switch between hats, even when they are working alone. Uh, even when they are working alone, they, they're sort of can put on, they're sort of like, okay, let me put on the red hat and see what is my gut reaction uh -huh. to this. And let me, let me put on this blue hat and see where, where am I not meeting my goals? by the parameters that I've set for myself or that have been set by the assignment, like where am I not meeting my goals, mm -hmm. which is just amazing. Uh, here's some other helpful refinements that Emery surfaced doing this work. She specifically refers to this as feedback process or feedback conversation. It's not just we, the group, are giving you feedback. Mm -hmm. It is not a one-sided transactional event. It is a process and a conversation. And there are going to be rules and structure to inform how we engage with each other. Emery discourages the word good in the feedback process. Ooh. Good for what, she says. And as I mentioned earlier, she also bans the word should. Mm -hmm. She also provides them with this tool which I'm telling you, Laura, and I'm telling all you sparklies right now so that I remember it when the heat is on. When you're having a hard time receiving feedback, look the person in the eye, nod your head once and say, okay, thanks. So if I'm experiencing mm -hmm. RSD, mm -hmm. like that I can just look somebody in the eye, nod my head and say, Okay, thanks. And now you'll know, Laura, when I do that, okay, that thanks. I'm experiencing rejection-sensitive <laughs> disorder. I have a version of that that I've been doing, like, with with Sweet Wes. I'll be like, got it. Got it. Got it. I'm so good. I got it. <laughs> because, because, and now, like, if the other person knows that's a, a, a clue, that you're like, okay, I understand it. And I, I, like, I've got your point. Now I need a minute to process that you know, which, okay, interesting. Thanks. I think I say okay, got thanks. it when I've got it, got it to you. It just might mean, I think I've got what you're trying to convey. And so we can keep going, uh -huh. especially when we're working against the clock. But I don't want you to think that I'm saying you have to stop talking to me right now. Got it. Which is when you say, okay, thanks. That means please stop talking. You know, Cam's, it's funny that we're trying to like work out these tells because I think what's probably, uh, first of all, I'm going to forget all of this because I have Nana Susan amnesia, but I also think what we're doing is even better when we just say, I'm having a feeling right now uh -huh. and I'm making, or I'm making up a story. 
and yeah. here's the the narrative and I just want to check in with you yeah. and see what's going on on your side of that zoom yeah you know or I mean? or yeah. I know like even recently we've just said like I'm going to be fine I'm processing the loss of this this edit or whatever this cut yeah. that we're making I'm just processing <laughs> yeah. it I will be fine. I'm taking a moment. Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah, like yeah. We're, we're both getting that. better at narrating what is happening in real time. Yes. So it doesn't. So you don't have to so wonder. It's a little bit like, it's kind of like yeah. you don't have, the other person doesn't have to wonder. I think it helps clarify the thought for the person, uh, clarifies the feeling for the person experiencing the feeling to put it into words. Yeah. And it also is real time cleanup on aisle seven. It is. It is. Yeah. And, and yeah. let me help you with that. I brought a broom. Like, well, we can just oh, clean that up, you know. I, I, brought, I brought some pink sawdust <laughs> to, to, to scatter on your vomit. Oh, oh, oh thanks. You you told me a spark about, like, <laughs> detritus and cereal. I give you that. So uh, back to the spark. So Emery said that this work has so many applications beyond the classroom. Mm -hmm. She uses it herself as a human in other workplaces, other consulting she does, uh, certainly in the creative process. She describes it as a feedback process that can hit all the different corners of like a creative thing that you're struggling with. So I just love this and I love you, Emery Lucas, <laughs> and I can't wait for you to meet Laura Camion and other members of the Sparkfile community. So thank you for those tools, Emery and Edward DeBono. We're going to, we're going to meet Edward more thoroughly in a future episode oh, of Sparkfile. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. But that moment is not now. Now I would like to return to David Young's email. Uh -huh. So this is okay. So back to David Young. So David writes, and I'm going to slightly uh, editorialize throughout this email, just so you know. <laughs> I was listening today to your episode on the upper limit problem and David Sedaris. Thank you for listening, Thanks. David. And I was reminded of a workshop I did about a year ago with a dancer and teacher named Liz Lerman. Uh -huh. And then in friends, this workshop and the one that you, Susan, did via Zoom at Utah State University were highlights of that school boop, year, BTW. Boop, boop. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'll take that compliment. <laughs> but back to Liz Lerman. She taught the critical response process, and I also read her beautiful book of the same title, co-authored with John Borstel a framework for giving and receiving creative criticism that breeds confidence, energy, and excitement rather than the defensiveness, negativity, and demotivation that often comes from constructive criticism, in quotes. It is an incredible philosophy and process, and I am pumped to use it and live with it as a teacher slash studio professor in the future because yes. I know it can change the way a musician or any creative approaches their craft, and I want to have that kind of positive impact on people. David, we love you for it. Yes. So beautiful. Yes. So David basically did my homework for me. Thanks, David. And wrote a quick summary of a textbook critical response process discussion. And again, I've added some of my own editorial input here. And I'm going to talk more about a source of mine in just a moment. That's me talking, Susan. So these are David's words. After the artist shows their work, they interact with responders with the help of a facilitator in four ways. So get it? There's a moderator on the scene for this. Yes. Here are the four ways. 
Number one, responders share how the work was meaningful to them or what drew them into the piece. This brings to light how art impacts us positively and builds trust between the artist and the responders. And I think our twist to this, Cami, and which you brought to our relationship is the artist who's receiving feedback must write it down. You must write down the positive. Uh, said, said the person who's like, wait, if you don't have any negative stuff for me, this must <laughs> not be right. a feedback session. You must write down the positive. Yeah. Positive feedback is feedback. That is positive correct. feedback is feedback. Just like you said, there what you Bonnie go. said, if like we, we seem to somehow, yeah. me, you know, being critical on both sides, receiving critical uh, feedback is like, okay, that's legit. Cause you know, they're telling me right. what's wrong with me or with my thing. Right. And then also the person yeah. giving it is like, well, anyone could give positive feedback. In order for me to be doing my job, I must give negative feedback. I must be critical. Right. It's my job. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So number two, the artist, get this, the artist asks questions of the responders. Yes. This allows the artist some control over what kind of feedback is given. This is when the real discussion, this is me editorializing, this is when the real discussion comes in and the moderator needs to keep it on the question that the artist asked. That's so right. the moderator needs to keep bringing it back until the artist's questions have been satisfied. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So number three, after the artist has asked all their questions, responders ask neutral questions. Asking questions not laden with opinions allows the responders to better understand that artist and their work and allows the artist to explore new territory in their work without the impulse to get defensive. So a neutral question is something like, what were you trying to convey with the lighting during that section? A question laden with opinion would be, why was the lighting in the scene so dark? Mm -hmm. So uh, a side note, almost anything can come up in this section. A question could be, have you thought about this as a screenplay? Mm -hmm. That's a neutral question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Number four, if the artist gives their consent, responders give opinions. Only at the end do responders get to share their opinions and suggestions, asking first, I have a comment about blank. May I share it with you? So this goes back to consent. Uh -huh, uh -huh. The artist is given the power to opt out of receiving comments if they don't think it will help them in that moment. Yeah. So this is to your point, Camian, about like, I'm, I'm taking a lot in right now. I'm almost, I'm getting close to capacity. Uh, full. <laughs> yep. I'm a, there's no more room at the end. So I'm going to say not right now, but mm -hmm, thank you. Mm -hmm. So uh, just a Susan sidebar, these these opinions should be concise statements said in a way that has kindness attached to them. Mm. And this is a piece of, uh, and I'm going to talk about the source of this in just a moment, but I just love this. Your opinion is not about your opinion. It is about helping the artist solve their puzzle. Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm going to talk about the source of that sentence in just a okay. moment. So all of this came as, as I said, as I was writing about the spark and Liz Lerman's critical response process, which still, of all the sparks you could send, David Young, you little psychic. <laughs> like, it's just crazy. So thank you for that, David. And thank you for your, your beautifully written email. So when I was working on the spark before I heard from David, I had a long, 
nutritious, delicious conversation with a wonderful person named Suzanne Fletcher, who does not claim to be a trained expert in Liz Lerman's critical response process, but she has used a version of this work in a creativity group that she's a member of where she often acts as a moderator. Mm. And Suzanne Fletcher is my jam. She said that one of the, she's just wonderful. She said that one of the reasons she loves this work is because as far as feedback goes, it's like being on the operating table, but with really good anesthesia. I mean, wow. come on, Suzanne Things Fletcher. fixed, but I don't feel a thing. This is the same person who said, your opinion is not about your opinion. It's about helping the artist solve <laughs> this puzzle. Like amazing gems drip from the mouth of Suzanne Fletcher. She, Suzanne said she also likes this approach because it comes out of the sense that the group providing feedback is trying to help the creative artist figure out this puzzle and yes. maybe the group can help them find a piece. So yes. it's, uh, yeah, yes. she's wonderful. She went on to say, it's all storytelling. There are There's an infinite number of ways that you can tell the same story. So if you're in the midst, if you're an artist, you're in, you're in the midst of working on something, the moment someone puts something into your head, you can never get it out. So it's not about suggesting how a person rewrite their story. You're trying mm -hmm. to help the artist make what they want to make mm -hmm. instead of getting them to make what you would make. That's and that right. is the challenge of it and the beauty of it. And she said that when the group is in sync with this work, it explodes the possibilities for the creator, which just gives me like goosebumps. Yeah. Thought of it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Suzanne said that this approach to feedback process puts more responsibility on the person who is requesting feedback. That artist takes more responsibility for what their needs are, Camion, per our discussion. And that means that before a, one of these critical response sessions, the artist needs to give some forethought to what their needs are and then ask for it. Yes. Formulate the language to ask for it. So uh, about this process, my friend Suze, who is also a devotee of Liz Lerman's critical response process, says, if you have a great moderator, it is great. And Suzanne Fletcher, by <laughs> all accounts, is a great moderator. The moderator can help read what the artist is feeling, and they can ask questions like, do you want a break? Do you need to take notes? Do you need a moment of quiet? Or you seem to be getting a lot of feedback on character X. Do you want to hear more about that or move on or take a break from that line of discussion? Uh -huh. Which I was just like, uh -huh. genius. It's just genius. So mm -hmm. the group that Suzanne is a part of and Suze is a part of, they've made some fun tweaks to this process, which I just love. After the artist presents their work, they get to share their first response to the experience of presenting their work which I think is great because they get first say to say, That's oh right. my God, that felt wonderful. Or, oh my God, my heart is pounding. I, I, I <laughs> was, that was rough friends. That felt rough. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So I loved that. Yeah. Um, another, another tweak when you agree with something someone else is offering, instead of repeating it and restating it, you can, they tap their feet yes. or they snap their fingers. So yes. it's just sort of like me too, me too, me too, without having the point repeated. Yes. Yeah. Um, when someone in the group is giving feedback and they begin rewriting the artist's work, mm -mm. the members of the group start flapping their arms like chickens. <laughs> so it's sort of a fun way to just be like, you're doing it. You're, you're doing, doing it again, this. Ronnie. Yeah. You're trying to rewrite somebody's work. Mm -mm. Um, 
And another thing that they encourage is no cross-talking with other members of the group, that there's one discussion that's happening yes, at a time. Yes. It's focused on the artist and the moderator, and there's no cross-talking. I like so, that. Yeah. I really, I love this approach. And I'm so thankful to Liz Lerman for developing it and David Young for sharing the spark and Suzanne Fletcher and Susie Meisner for being such badass participants and moderators and sharing their wealth of wisdom around this method. Amazing. Um, when I was talking to Emery Lucas, she was saying that most people have my reaction when I think about the feedback process and I start getting like that mm -hmm. <laughs> rejection, sensitive dysphoria. Emery said, we all have a lot of trauma because so few people have training on how to Ugh. provide feedback constructively. What they are sharing is often about their ego. Yes. So, yes. Uh, so you're trying to listen to the feedback and it's coming from their ego and that's hitting my ego and we're experiencing all these layers of interpretation. So it can, a lot can be lost in translation and it can feel like a game of telephone. Emery went on to say, when it's an artist critiquing another artist, it can be very hard to strip away and understand what you're talking about, which is, or, or what you're working on, which is neither about your ego or mine, but something in between us. Yes. So to somehow not be affected by that or to take it personally, it's an ongoing practice. And I thought it was very wise of Emery to say that. This is an ongoing practice. It is. And you may come to find that there are certain people in your life who are not interested or able to engage in the process, you know, with a set of rules around it. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, there may be someone whose work you respect completely, and you want so badly to get their feedback. And they may not be a great participant in a feedback process. They just may not yes. have the capability. They yeah. may not be able to extradite their ego from it. And, and in those cases, I think we have to learn to walk away from needing feedback from that person if they have shown themselves yeah. to be in it, unable to, you know, be yes. a participant in this. And, or might they be able to be trained up in exactly. this? Exactly. Yeah. You know, if they're if willing. It's a collaborator. Yeah. It, yeah, who like who you love, who you've had, uh, you've been able to make great things with them. Might they be open to employing even some of these tools? That's right. It also makes me think, Laura, you and I talk a lot when we teach and when we coach, we talk about identifying really well-selected, thoughtfully selected accountability partners and collaborative mm -hmm. partners. And I think this is another one of those dimensions, you know, looking for somebody who is willing to embrace some of these tools so that you can be talking the same language. That's right. And you can really uh, be lifting each other up and inspiring each other with these conversations instead of <laughs> inviting more trauma into the situation. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to share some key takeaways. Oh, yeah. Just because this was, I know this is a lot. I love, this is a lot I of spark. love all of this. 
when you are on the receiving end of feedback, be specific about who you let hold the measuring stick. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we live in a world, anyone can say anything that they want. And for instance, if you're a student, maybe you have a teacher whose taste is not exactly in alignment with yours, or maybe you're getting reviewed by the New York Times, but anyone can say what they want, but you get to decide whose feedback you're going to take in. And always remember, you can do what Emery Lucas taught us and look at them in the eye, nod your head once and say, okay, thanks. Um, Consent is critical. Mm -hmm. Consent is everything. Regarding that moment of consent, Emery had this to say, the key to the feedback process is not which system you're using. It's more about the moment beforehand where there is the mutual agreement of why we're here and what we want from this moment. That moment of consent is the most important of all. If we're both consenting to follow those rules, that moment is more important than any language that you might use afterwards. It puts into the open benefit of the doubt, kindness, mm -hmm. and goodness mm -hmm. that we're here for the right reasons and it owns the vulnerability of the moment. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, she, she also said, if there are not limits or boundaries to the conversation, it will not be productive or cultivate an environment of safety. There is safety in the knowledge that you can close off parts of the conversation. This is yeah. what you were saying, Cams. This is what the Liz Lerman work is doing, where you can say... I have an opinion about blank. Would you like to hear it? And the person can say, I'm that door's, I'm not open for business. That door's yeah. not, yeah. I'm so working that know. out in my own mind, you know. So I don't yeah, want, yeah. I, I yeah. just, I, I agree that it's perhaps an unfinished uh, or it's an unanswered question. I'd like to spend more time thinking about that first. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, another takeaway, if you are seeking feedback, take a more active role in the feedback process and be specific about what you need. To that end, providing context is key. Let responders mm -hmm. know roughly how much work you've put into this and how sensitive the subject matter is and how familiar or unfamiliar the medium is to you. So, for instance, if you spent 30 minutes writing your one millionth comedy sketch about something you overheard on the subway that made you giggle, we're going to contextualize that differently than, say, the first chapter of the first book you've ever written that you spent two weeks polishing about a topic that is very hot to the touch for you. Providing context mm -hmm. is going to help responders calibrate that feedback. And then what do we make of it, Cams? Mm. I'll tell you what I'm making of it. I am making a kinder, more productive approach to constructive feedback Yay. that empowers the artist to ask specifically for what they need. And I think in doing so, perhaps a bit less rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Uh, that's, that's what I'm going to make of it. That's huge. That is huge. <laughs> it's it's going to be huge for you, baby. Woo! I'm so not worried about it. I love that you're doing that for you and great. All of us will, all of us will benefit, but I love doing that also for all of our clients and the knowledge that we yeah. will create safe spaces and brave spaces where, uh, these conversations can happen without fear of more trauma and without yeah. fear of, uh, shutting down, you know, with everyone understanding what their, their role is in it. I haven't figured out how to, to, um, word this yet or, or expand upon this. But it's now messy, baby. I'm going to say, like, I would add to, to, to the takeaways, like, 
know when it's not about you. Because people, mm. when people do say, let's say they go off the rails and they do say things that, that feel inappropriate. The, it, I just can't, I, I, I'm trying to, uh, I, I'm like, am I going to give an example? I was among a bunch of people, uh, very, very high functioning creatives and, uh, someone who was struggling with their own work blurted out, no one here knows how to write. No one. Whoa. And I was like, I do. I know how to write. I thought, and this is what I thought to myself. I was like, I know how to write. This isn't about me. This is about what you're struggling yes. with right now. And I'm not yeah. going to take that on. I'm not going to leave here today with some message that I don't know how to write because I know that I know how to write. And frankly, yeah. you know that I know how to write. So this is something you're struggling with right now. I'm going to have compassion for you and your struggle but I am not going to put this heavy blanket on my shoulders and walk out of here right now. No way. Man, Camion, it's so, here's the thing. When we throw down these like blind item anecdotes, <laughs> I, I'm like, who said, who said it? it? You do Listeners, know the person. Are you with me? I'll tell you off. Oh, I'll tell you oh, off screen. I do know the, oh, you do. <laughs> awesome. I, so, so I want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly. Um, when you and maybe you're not in this sort of um, very thoughtful feedback process that we're describing, but when somebody just yeah. <laughs> blurts something out, being able to identify when it's not about you. And this this is something that I have come to later in life it be, and very difficult for me because as I mentioned up front, everything was about me. So if anything went wrong, it's, a, my, yeah. you know, if I'm at a party and people aren't having fun, it's not even my party, but I still feel like I have... I've got to get the people like there must be something I'm Ugh. doing or something I could do, oh you know, God. somehow everything's my responsibility. God, how did you not just like, how were you not exhausted and just sleeping all the time? I it sounds so tiring. Certainly was, but, <laughs> but it's because there wasn't, um, like I understood my parents not wanting like on the very far end of the spectrum in the other direction is like, Oh, they're just saying that because they're jealous that sort of like, um, there isn't anything for me to learn about this because this is just all the other person. That was the opposite of my upbringing. So I'm over here on the other end of the spectrum where everything must be related to my faulty being. Of course. Yeah. And so really needing to come to the middle, like I still very rarely will, will just, um, a blanket statement like this isn't about me. But there are times mm. when it isn't about you. And it mm. took me a long time to learn. And I don't overuse it. But there are times when I can look in someone's face and I can think to myself, oh, <laughs> hurt people, hurt people. And this is someone who is hurting right now. And they're swinging a knife. They're swinging a knife. Mm. And I'm just going to step back. I'm going to mm. send them some love from afar. But what I'm not going to do is is take on somehow take responsibility the, the for yeah. what's going on in them, and and so I do say that all with a with a like with a nod towards balance because I don't think that we can learn anything if we operate in that mode all the time. But I do know of many many a story we've heard about feedback and my own experiences too where. 
that comment, that really hurtful comment, that's not about you. That came from somewhere mm. else. And it's okay to walk away from it. You know, the other thing that's coming to mind for me is I'm like, when does this break down? And what I have observed is this breaks down when there's a ticking clock, when it's sort of like, it's, yes. we don't have much time yes. and it's almost go time and we have to be working very quickly or when I am tired. And when mm. I'm tired, I can get a little sloppy one, sloppy with my self-expression and I may forget, I like, I notice I'd like to see, right? That uh -huh. goes out the window. Uh -huh. But also when my uh, my defenses are down or that adaptation energy is low, mm -hmm. I know I've observed in myself, even in interactions with you, where I will perceive something that later in the cool light of day, when we unpack it and clean it up, I'm like, yeah, when I'm tired, I, <laughs> I can take things, I can go more quickly to that um, dysphoria. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and you got to think like that happens in groups as well. I'll add to the list of when it breaks down or, or has the potential to break down. And I think that is when in a group setting and asking for any kind of feedback, if there is an idea in anyone's head that they can impress others with their criticisms with the way they their ability yes. to pull something apart so if that dynamic is set up where there are leaders in the space and there are people who want yeah. to impress i think it can break down because people then instead of thinking that my job is to help solve this puzzle for this artist they think my yeah. job is to stand above head head and shoulder above the rest yeah yeah so this is where I feel like somebody like Suzanne Fletcher is such a fucking badass. This is where she totally kicks ass because she's no joke. Like she's a, she's not having it. She's, she's this warm, wonderful person. Yeah. And it's also, she's very direct and she is, <laughs> she is not having it. She's there. And she said that thing that I love, which is, your opinion is not about your opinion. Yes. It's about helping the artist solve their puzzle. And she is, uh, uh, how can I say, I don't even know. She's there to like make sure that artist is getting what they need. And I almost said like bodyguarding them and it's not that, but, uh, but yeah. a little bit is to be that advocate for that person when they're, vulnerably sharing of themselves yep. and then also vulnerably receiving input on, as Emery Lucas was saying, work where the artist and their, what they make, those lines are really blurry. Yep. So it can be like, I'm sharing something of myself. I'm sharing myself. Those lines are really blurry. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. Having like a really good... <laughs> moderator it's essential artist cre and a, creative bodyguard and i think like collective agreement on why we're gathered here today what is our purpose yeah i do think like again in the professional world and the creative world um there is there is a instinct and a belief that it's necessary to be additive so if you did not contribute something amazing Absolutely. in this critique, 
you haven't been yeah. additive. So why mm -hmm. were you in this meeting? Why are you a part of this group? And so trying, you know, figuring out how to alleviate that. It is okay if you don't have the answer. If I don't have anything that could be helpful to Susan in her process right now, it is okay for me to remain quiet mm. in appreciation of her work, but simply like, I don't know that I have an answer. And, mm -hmm. it, and that's fine. So, so you can pass. But I don't think that things are typically set up where that feels like it's an okay thing. It feels like, well, you're not right. Yeah. Why are you not saying something? Yeah. So it's interesting. I love this spark. I love this conversation. I really think well, it's, it's a, it's an honorable quest to get to. I do yeah. too. I do too. And I am excited to implement much of this and, and, and reinvest in some of it and, uh, and to share it with um, artists that we love and, including our, our clients. So Yay, yeah, I love it too. Jesus. Good Ooh, job. Beautiful spark. I think that's it. I think it's time to get you onto your vaccine kid. Okay. I'm going to do it. All right. This episode of the spark file was made on Muncie Lenape and Seminole land. And as always, we hope this put another bunch of sparks in your file. If there's a spark you'd like us to explore David Young, or if you've taken a spark and fanned it into a creative flame and you'd like to share that, also, David Young, <laughs> email us at thesparkfile at gmail.com or submit it through our website, thesparkfile.com. We'll even take your feedback happily. But you know the price of admission. First, you have to share a creative risk that you have taken recently. You can follow us on social at The Spark File and be sure to subscribe, rate, and five-star review this podcast. It really helps other listeners find us. And if you like this podcast, we hope you'll share it with people you love. And if you didn't like it, ask consent before you give us feedback. <laughs> what? Yes, Emery Lucas. If something tickles your fancy and gets your creative juices flowing, we're writing you a forever permission slip to make that thing that's been knocking at your door. It's your turn to take a spark and fan it into a flame. You got to take it and, and make, it. make it. Spark your puss. Spark your puss. <laughs> When I bump into something that inspires me, I dump it in my spark files. Could be something that I want to make or how I want to be. I pump it in my spark files. I jump into my spark files. Let's open up the spark files.